Fourth Estate presents The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on a crisp walk through midwinter in its cold, glistening splendour, all the way up to Christmas Day. Along the path, there'll be recipes for some of your festive favourites and some new ideas too, to excite your palate in the cold months. You'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and a hundred essential recipes for midwinter, as well as some new content that we've recorded here at my home in North London. It's Christmas Day. Welcome, and a very Merry Christmas. In this episode, we'll talk about the tradition of Christmas dinner. Are you having turkey or goose? and how to carefully cook them both. Beyond the meat, we'll make some crisp roast potatoes, steam the pudding, and finally settle in the aftermath of Christmas dinner. The warmth of the house buoyed by full bellies and festive cheer, with a drink, Christmas television, and a warm mince pie. 25th of December, Christmas day, ringing bells and a roasting goose. Christmas morning, and my day begins with the ringing of church bells. There is a delightful online source called Bells on Sunday, an archive of bell ringing from churches around the country, for which I thank BBC Radio 4. You can scroll down and choose your belfry. Not only do you get the most glorious bell ringing, but also snippets of history about the barrels, ears, cannons and clappers of the bells themselves. Utter joy despite the heartache of no snow. Nothing can extinguish the frisson of Christmas Day. Yes, there is much to do, but I've always felt that to be a good thing. Heaven help me the day I have nothing to do. Much of the practical business was dealt with yesterday. The gravy is mellowing in the fridge, the stuffing awaits its fate, and the plum pud is ready to be steamed. I have the bird to roast and baste, the vegetables to do, potatoes to roast, parsnips to cook and mash, and Brussels sprouts to halve and sauté in butter. There are a few sausages to wrap in bacon because I love them. At some point, there is a table to lay and some wine to open, which doesn't sound much, but this is, above all, a day of interruptions. Well-meaning, but interruptions nevertheless. There is a moment, late on Christmas morning, when I can feel myself start to relax. The bird is singing sweetly in the oven. The preparation, vegetables, pudding, gravy are done and dusted. The kitchen smells wonderful. A smell that is joyous, rich, full of happiness and geniality. May I suggest you sit down and take it all in, as I do. Collect your thoughts. There is still much to do, but also take in the scene. Listen to that roast sizzling calmly in the oven, the excited chatter of loved ones, the happy chaos of Christmas morning. Five minutes in which to settle your spirit. The goose. I love the smell of a goose as it roasts, the sweet savour of its meat, the lashings of fat it gives us to play with. The flavour of the meat is magnificent. By that, I mean full, deep, rich and earthy. The goose was the original Victorian Christmas bird. The breed is indigenous to this country, unlike the turkey. All will be well, 
as long as you occasionally remove the fat from the roasting tray, don't overcook the bird, and carve it carefully. Goose has been my Christmas bird of choice for the last 20 years or more. Sales of geese have been slowly rising for the last few years, with all the major suppliers posting increased sales between 20 and 50% on the previous year. Some butchers have told me that for them, goose now outsells turkey. The goose hasn't always been kept for Christmas alone. Until the Second World War, Michaelmas, September the 29th, was the traditional day for eating the bird in Britain, though it passed to being a Christmas event in Victorian times. The geese were mostly brought up on mixed farms. Fed on grass during the spring and summer, then, come the autumn, fattened on grain and the harvest stubble for Christmas. They've been farmed here for centuries, particularly in East Anglia, though the most famous goose fair has been held in Nottingham since the 13th century. The fair, by the way, is held to this day, though its fame is now as an exceptional fun fair, complete with rides and carousels, candy floss and helter-skelter. No longer will you see hundreds of geese making their way on foot from Lincolnshire. Goose was once the Christmas bird of choice for the middling to well off. Those with smaller budgets stuck to beef, while the wealthy tucked into turkey. Clearly things have changed, with goose now being the more expensive choice. It is easy to see why some of us choose a goose, but it is not without its downside. Even the largest bird is unlikely to feed quite as many as a turkey of similar weight. The shape, long and elegant compared with a turkey's more portly frame, means you need a large oven and an equally large roasting tin. The fat that seeps out as it cooks, however delicious and useful, can be a danger. It needs removing from the roasting tin carefully if we aren't to scald ourselves. Geese are generally more expensive, partly because they cannot be reared in such confined environments as the turkey. Another downside is that as the flesh cools, it firms up, rendering it slightly less useful for leftovers. The trick for sandwiches is to slice it very thinly. Traditionally, we pack the carcass with a stuffing of onion, breadcrumbs and sage, the most pungent of kitchen herbs. Use more than five leaves in anything and you will have made chest liniment. It has an affinity to fatty meats, which is why we so often use it with pork. The resinous pine notes of sage seem especially appropriate at this time of year. Fruit-based stuffings, provided they include lemon and orange zest, are worth thinking about. Add cubes of quince, pear or sharp apple to softened onions and fresh breadcrumbs, perhaps. Or, brilliant, I think, dried apricots. There is something about dried apricots and goose that just works, like pork with apple. Use pearl barley instead of breadcrumbs, if you like, about 500 grams for a 4.5 kilo bird, boiled, drained and seasoned with softened onions, a little thyme and snippets of fried bacon. The sweet, rich flesh responds to a little sourness. That balancing snap of acidity often comes in the form of apple sauce or redcurrant jelly, I toss lemon shells into the roasting tin, partly for the heavenly smell of roast goose and citrus wafting through the kitchen on a winter's morning. Others stuff an orange up its bottom. The meat of the bird, served cold the following day, will perk up at the sight of a gherkin or a vinegar-spiked dill and cucumber salad. I often serve an orange or grapefruit salad with mine. The turkey. 
A roast turkey taken from the oven on Christmas morning is a splendid sight. The skin glistening gold, the legs lightly crisp, and the juices sizzling in the roasting tin are treasures to behold. You will need a dark feathered bird of a traditional breed that has been bred for flavour, slowly reared and properly hung. It will have had a good life, some might say pampered, some of which may have been spent outdoors. It will have cost you a small fortune and will be worth every penny. The alternative, a huge, cheap, pale, mass-produced bird, reared cheek by jowl and packed like sardines in a dreary barn, is not even worth thinking about. There is no mystery to roasting a turkey. You can effectively ignore all you've heard about wrapping the legs in foil or whatever the latest wheeze is. Simply take the bird out of its box, unwrap it, and leave it at cool room temperature for a couple of hours before you cook it. Season it with extreme generosity, baste it regularly during cooking, and let it rest before you carve. It really is as simple as that. I offer no rules, but I do have a few suggestions. Order your turkey from the butcher in advance. Go for broke. This meal may well be the most memorable of the year. Investing in a higher quality, higher welfare bird that has been properly hung with its guarantee of a better, deeper flavour will be worth every penny. A cheap turkey is cheap for a reason, so you can bet that someone, somewhere, is getting a rough deal. Tragically, it may not just be the farmer, it may be the bird itself. Don't cook it straight from the fridge. Give the bird a good two hours in a cool room before cooking. Do not panic. It's only like cooking a big chicken. If you stuff the bird, and well you might, the chance of having those roasting juices trickling through the stuffing as it cooks is too good to miss. Don't pack the cavity too tightly. Leave plenty of room for the heat to get right through. Cook any extra stuffing separately. Use a roasting tin large enough to give the heat a chance to circulate and, just as importantly, room to put a few of the tatties and stuffing balls around the roast. Consider starting the bird on its breast and turning it over halfway through roasting. This will keep the breast meat deliciously moist and juicy. I baste regularly during cooking instead, but some people swear by it. It is worth a thought. Leave the cooked bird to rest for a good 35 to 40 minutes before carving. The most crucial piece of advice I can offer is not to overcook it. Old roasting times, those in Granny's cookbooks for instance, are generally way too long for modern, good quality birds. Roast potatoes You will not find recipes for boiled Brussels sprouts here, or even Brussels sprouts with chestnuts. But as roast potatoes are such an integral part of the meal, I will repeat here my way of ensuring a perfect batch. Details in full are in tender volume one. Peel the potatoes, cut them into pieces large enough to need two bites each, then bring them to the boil in deep, generously salted, boiling water. Boil for five to seven minutes or so, until they will take a skewer with ease, then drain and return them to the pan. Take the pan with both hands and give it a good shake or two, which will have the effect of bruising the edges of the potatoes. If you are cooking them around the roast, tip them in now, toss them briefly in the roasting juices, then cook for about 45 minutes, turning once until they are golden and crisp. If you are cooking them separately, get the fat hot. 
duck or goose or dripping is the best, butter and a little olive oil if not. Then toss the drained and bruised potatoes in the fat and roast for 45 minutes, turning them once to ensure a nice, even crispness. When the turkey comes out to rest, turn the oven up to 200, gas 6, to get a good crisp finish to your potatoes. To carve. When the bird has rested for 30 to 40 minutes, it is time to carve. I remember the first time James showed me how to carve a bird by removing the breasts as two long, thick pieces of meat rather than carving them in long, thin slices. It changed everything. The bird fed more, the meat stayed juicy and warm, and the whole enterprise became far less of a hassle. It should, however, be done in the kitchen, not at the table. Get the gravy hot. It will help keep the meat warm as you carve. Securing the bird with a carving fork and using a very sharp carving knife, remove the wings and drumsticks first and put them in a warm place. If you don't remove them first, they'll just get in the way. Run your carving knife along the breastbone, slowly easing the meat away from the carcass as you go, working your knife down the body until the breast can be freed in one long, thick piece. Repeat on the other side. Remove the brown meat, the best bits, from the legs and wings and place them on a large, warm platter. Slice the breast meat into short, thick pieces. Add them to the platter, then ladle over some of the piping hot gravy. The extras. Gravy. There simply has to be gravy. Preferably made the day before, to give it time to develop and you time to breathe. It must, absolutely must, be blisteringly hot. Something sweet sharp, such as cranberry sauce, will go nicely with the sweet meat. Stuffing is important, though far from crucial. Oh, and roast potatoes are non-negotiable. It goes without saying that the choice of vegetables is up to you, but they should, I think, be seasonal. Parsnips and sprouts, then, rather than green beans. To make life bearable for the cook, avoid all suggestions to try to please everyone. Otherwise, you'll find yourself cooking sprouts with and without chestnuts both roast and mashed parsnips, peas, carrots and red cabbage. Oh, and someone is bound to want cauliflower cheese too. My advice is to cook one green vegetable, sprouts or cabbage, one roast vegetable, parsnips and roast potatoes only. By the way, those little sausages wrapped in bacon I mentioned earlier are really rather wonderful with the turkey and I do try to find time and space for them. Steaming the pudding the pudding wrapped up in its china bowl is already cooked, needing only to be reheated. The density of a plum pudding means a long steaming, the actual time depending on its size. My recipe is for eight, so a steaming of three hours should produce a shining orb of fruit, piping hot right through to the middle. To reheat, get a large deep saucepan of water onto boil. The water should come halfway up the sides. Lower the pudding in its basin Wrap tightly in cling film, foil and muslin into the water. Tying the corners of the muslin in a large knot on top will make for easier lifting when the pudding is done. Cover with a lid, lower the heat to a low boil and steam for three hours, taking a regular look at the water level. If you need to top the water up, as you almost certainly will, use boiling water from the kettle so it never comes off the boil. The end of the day. The aftermath of Christmas dinner is a beautiful sight. 
the abandoned table, jewel-bright pools left in shimmering glasses, garnet and ruby, abandoned paper crowns in shades of gold and pink, a scattering of corks in empty bottles, crumbs and crackers and ribbons and wrapping paper, a scene of jubilant devastation. It is now, with the washing up being carried into the kitchen, that I dig my heels in. I flatly refuse to get involved in games, playing charades or trying to figure out the rules of a recently unwrapped board game. I've never been a team player, and I'm not going to start now. I would much rather read a book. Each under his own, I guess. I have an excuse. I cooked, I shopped, I chopped, I stirred and stuffed, roasted and toasted. I'm doing nothing else now. Not a jot, not a crumb. I shall simply pour myself a drink, reach for a mince pie and watch Christmas Day television, which is never without its delights. I should add here that there is a biannual tradition in this house, one that doesn't apply this year, where I start writing a book on Christmas afternoon. For the life of me, I cannot remember how it even started. I only know that the first sentence of each of my books has been started on this day. It has become something of a ritual. It is what I've done every other year for the last 25 years, and if I'm honest, what I would like to do until I conk out, hopefully shortly after Christmas dinner a few years hence, collapsing silently, discreetly, into my plum pudding. Thank you for listening to the final episode of The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and 100 Essential Recipes for Midwinter is available now in hardback, audio and ebook, and published by Fourth Estate. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Nigel Slater's Eat is one of his best-selling and most popular books. Now he has written the green follow-up, Green Feast, a book packed full of short, doable and fast vegetable recipes. Green Feast is split into two volumes, Green Feast Spring-Summer, coming in May 2019, and Green Feast Autumn-Winter, which will be published in September 2019. This is exactly the food everyone wants to eat right now, all told in Nigel's warm signature style. You can pre-order now from all good bookstores.